Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Stunt Plane Podcast. Uh, I'm so happy to be back filming another episode with you guys, and uh, it's been really fun for the past couple of weeks. And so, everybody, today's episode is going to be fun, because this week we're going to be breaking down the world-famous home-built Giles G200 aircraft. So that's going to be really fun. And amazing. So, also, we have a lot of cool stuff um, to be planned today. Uh, a guy named Richard Giles is the special guest that's going to be joining us today. And uh, that's going to be uh, really, 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 really fun. So, that's going to be fun. That's going to be really cool and uh, amazing. So, folks, uh, we're going to get right into that, and uh, we'll see you guys, or, or just before we get in, I um, I posted the thing on Instagram, and I forgot to um, save the season, so I'm sorry about that. And so, folks, that's going to be fun, and then we will do with our, a lot of our normal stuff after the episode is done. So, Everybody, I uh, hope you guys enjoyed the episode, and I'll talk to you guys on the backhand. Hope you enjoy. Was much closer in size to a pit and make it a monoplane. 
contest, and I saw this uh, airplane from France, the Cap 21, and it had the first of the blunt nose slab sided airfoils that are common on all of our aerobatic airplanes today. It was the first time we had seen those. Uh, the laser had a 23012 airfoil, and the fence obviously has a, a, the uh, uh, different airfoils on the top and bottom. They're symmetrical, but they're not that same blunt nose slab sided airfoil. I wonder what the heck is that airfoil? It looks so silly. We even were calling up uh, uh, ice cream cone airfoils or snow cone airfoils. And uh, I started talking to aerodynamicists. I had a number of friends, uh, one family friend who was an aerodynamicist. I said, you know, where's, where's all the data on these airfoils? He said, well, it's, I think it's some old German papers from World War II. There's some stuff, but. Uh, Cap aviation won't release the coordinates on the airfoil, so we don't really know exactly, but it sure works. Well, a couple of years later, uh, while I was down at the Nationals, uh, probably around 81 or 82, so within a couple of years, I met uh, a guy who worked for Bell, a guy named Ray Morris. Uh, some of you may know Ray. And Ray worked for Bell, but he loved aerobatics, and he understood the uh, aerodynamics. He had studied it and figured it all out, and he had actually designed the wing that was being built at that time. Um, and so uh, Ray was the first guy that I talked to that could help me uh, begin to get some good data on those new airfoils. And so uh, ultimately, he provided the, the airfoil coordinates, as you see on the G200. Uh, that was one change we made to those 76, uh, 1976 drawings. The other was, when I first conceived the airplane, uh, it was going to be a steel tube, wood wing, just like we were building all the rest of our airplanes. It had a, a wire brace tail, a very, very conventional airplane. It didn't take very long to start adding up all the weights, and, and I could tell that I wasn't going to see the weight savings that I felt like I really needed to make the airplane what, what I wanted it to be. And so, uh, in the late 80s, um, carbon fiber was just beginning to, to be available. Uh, Lance Air, obviously, it was, was doing, doing a lot of things with pre-break glass. Uh, but nobody was doing anything with uh, pure carbon airplane. We were using carbon in uh, spark caps and some other critical areas of airplanes. Extra had obviously brought out their new composite wing, and they were using uh, carbon in, in you know, most of the construction of that wing. But we really hadn't seen anything in a complete airframe. There was also about this time a white paper that was published. The EAA published it in Sport Aviation. I think it was in Sport Aerobatics as well. Uh, There's a white paper that was done by um, some engineering students and some folks in conjunction with Leo on building an all-carbon fiber wing for the laser. And it was fascinating. The interesting thing about it was, though, that they said at the end of the article, that even though the technology was there to build the kind of wing that I wanted at the weights that I wanted, they estimated the cost for an all-carbon laser wing. Remember, this was in the uh, late 70s. They estimated the, the cost to be around a 
And so set that aside and didn't do anything else with it for a long time. But knew ultimately I, I want a carbon fiber airplane. Um, there were coincidences and circumstances that changed in my life. Uh, at around 91, uh, I had a business. Uh, I owned a business that was building parts for, uh, we built parts for Boeing. We also built uh, 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 assemblies and things like that for General Dynamics, a, a lot of aerospace things based there in Portland. And there was another company up in Seattle, Tai Aircraft, that built the push rods. Make a long story short, they wanted the company more than I did. And so I sold it to them and I found myself with some free time and uh, nothing to do except to play with this airplane. So that, uh, at that time, I, I started bringing those drawings out and then deciding, okay, am I going to really make this into an airplane or am I just going to have this nice drawing that I can show people for the rest of my life? And uh, I, I happened to show it to uh, those drawings about this very same time. I had to show those drawings to my girlfriend and she said, build it, build it. She's here today, and I thank you. <laughs> she, uh, I doubt that it never would have happened if it wasn't for that day. I still remember it. But uh, uh, I started uh, trying to get in touch with the people who could help me understand how to build a carbon fiber free prey airplane. And one of the people that I was directed to was Martin Coleman, who had done the engineering work for Lancer and a number of airplanes. Martin has passed now, but he was very instrumental in bringing composite materials, and particularly carbon fiber materials, into our industry and into our sport. And so I went down and uh, took uh, Martin's one-week uh, course in composite construction, composite design, and uh, came away with the idea, yeah, this is doable. We can, we can do this now. The technology, the price of carbon fiber has come down. Uh, the, the infrastructure is now in place that we can make this happen. So uh, I already had most of the uh, structural work done on the airplane as a steel tube, wood wing airplane. I gave all of that to Martin and uh, he agreed to convert that to layup schedules for a monocoque constru uh, fuselage. And uh, that was done and finished, oh, in probably 92, 93, we started building plugs and molds, and the airplane started going together. And 94, uh, finished the airplane and flew it on March the 7th, 1994, which was my daughter's birthday. And uh, uh, went out real early in the morning so I could avoid all my friends. Um, and uh, flew the airplane. It was, it was a, uh, you know, it's a completely clean sheet of airplane, a clean sheet of paper airplane. And while I knew it would fly, um, you know, Jenny's here. You know that uh, you know you do all the you, you do all the design work right. Uh, and you do double check all of the all the calculations. You know what the airplane's going to fly like, but it's still a little bit disconcerting to get into an airplane that is totally unlike anything else that's ever flown and, and push the push the throttle up. Uh, and it was a, a very very unique experience. Um, one of the people that was uh, there in the Portland area 
early stages, was an unlimited competitor. He was flying a pits. He was the go-to guy in the Northwest when it came to unlimited. Uh, Greg Howard, who uh, flew the air show on Monday evening, and his tool, there's 200, is right out here, the, the one with the green stripe. Very pretty one that's in the, in the photo upside down. Greg uh, was kind enough to help me very early on with a lot of the test flying of the airplane. Um, I did the initial flight and some of the initial spin testing and all, but when it came to uh, you know, uh, current uh, unlimited competition, it had been years since I'd flown any competition at that time. So Greg helped me out, I really appreciate that. Thanks a lot, Greg. The airplane flies today, uh, and its handling uh, qualities are really a thanks to Greg and to another young man, uh, Scott Riddell. Just a phenomenal talent. And at that time, a very young man. Most of you probably never heard of Scott. Scott was actually flew unlimited in RV4 and did a very, very nice job of it. Uh, I think he was normally flying advanced. He went to a contest. They didn't have enough unlimited competitors, as I remember. And Scott said, well, I'll fly it. And he did. And that's the kind of talent that young man had. And he helped a lot with the fine-tuning of the, uh, the flying qualities of the airplane. So that's pretty much um, you know, how the airplane came to be. Uh, took it down to Sun and Fun in 94. Um, it's interesting because when we went to Sun and Fun, one of the things that I was playing with were VGs. We put, uh, I was talking to uh, Paul Robertson of the Arlington, who's kind of the VG guru, and uh, we were really curious what would VGs do on an aerobatic airplane? We knew that they would keep the boundary layer attached and would be, you know, provide some pretty phenomenal performance. So we put VGs on the top and bottom of the wing according to the, uh, the layout that he provided uh, to me. And it was pretty interesting. I think probably the only person here that ever flew it that way besides myself is Greg. But the, the size of the loops that we could do with that thing and the low speeds were just amazing. Uh, the, we took them off uh, mainly because they did also some kind of strange things with the snaps and spins. Um, and just for an aerobatic airplane, we figured that they really weren't worth the additional uh, uh, trouble. But uh, if you look at some of the early pictures, one of the photos I think has been published recently, you can see the VGs on, on the airplane, on the wings of the airplane. That was really an interesting experience or experiment. Anybody got any additional questions about that? Uh, be happy to you know, entertain those and talk to us later. Talk to Greg. Uh, I think there have been a few aerobatic airplanes that have tried VGs since then, uh, with with kind of mixed results. But uh, when I took the airplane to Sun and Fun, it had the VGs on it. Of course, that generated a lot of talk, along with the fact that it was a brand new airplane and. Uh, the question that I kept getting over and over was, you know, can, are you going to build more of them? Is it going to be available as a kit? Do you have plans uh, available? And at the time, I really didn't. Uh, when the airplane was first designed and built, I was building an airplane just for myself. Um, I, I really had no intention of uh, getting involved with uh, the production of kit airplanes. Um, there was a 
young man, an attorney there in Portland, also very active in our aerobatic uh, chapter, uh, Jay McRosty. Jay was the first person that talked me into, he said, well, just let me pull parts out of your molds. And I said, okay, we'll do it. And so Jay McCrosty um, pulled the first set of, of parts out of the molds, and number two, um, you know, came to, came to life. That airplane is still flying. I believe it's now in Atlanta.
still fly it. He and his son both fly it on a regular basis. So that's kind of where the, the 202 went. Uh, there, there, is a, there are a few differences in the original prototype 202 and all the rest of them that you see from serial number 2 and on. The biggest difference is that the fuselage is one inch taller, just to give a little bit more room. Uh, I'm kind of short from my waist up, got long legs, but short torso, and so the, the, uh, the airplane fit me just fine, but uh, some of the other guys wanted just a little bit more height. But other than that, the, uh, the, the, the prototype 202 is exactly like all of the rest of them. Um, shortly after that time, uh, there were some other folks that became interested. One of the most interesting airplanes that, uh, that I designed was uh, Wayne Hanley came calling one day. Uh, Wayne had been uh, involved with the 200. In fact, he flew it and he did with one of our demo pilots here at Oshkosh, flew it in the show. And Wayne just loved the 200. And he said, you know, he said, what I've always wanted, he said, my dream air show airplane is an airplane that will go straight up and accelerate vertically. And uh, we kind of looked at each other and said, yeah, that's possible. And we had some similar ideas about the concept of the airplane. And he said, could you design me an airplane that would do that? He said, I want a turbine airplane that'll go straight up. I said, well, yeah, we could do it. And, um, you know, uh, in hindsight, uh, it shouldn't have been quite so quite so quick because it was a, it was a huge job. But uh, I designed uh, the Turbo Raven. It's actually known as a Giles G750. And... Uh, we built the, the fuselage, the wings, the, the whole airplane was built there in uh, Scappoose at our facility. And then we took it across the mountains over to Bend to um, some, some folks over there that did uh, turbine conversions for ag airplanes and they did the engine installation. And it was a, uh, a PT6A-34, I believe. Um, anyway, the... Uh, put out about 750 horsepower, hence the G750. And uh, those of you who, who were uh, privileged enough to have seen the Turbo Raven fly, uh, I don't think I ever uh, watched that airplane fly that I didn't just burst out laughing. How many of you saw it fly? Yeah, it's a phenomenal airplane. Um, I talked with Wayne just before I came to Oshkosh this year, and we were, uh, we were hoping that we could get him here. Um, how many of you know Wayne personally? And he's still flying, still going strong, and uh, uh, it, was great, uh, it was a great experience. Then um, there's some photos. Anybody that's not familiar with the airplane, there are some photos inside. Um, so anyway, that's kind of the, the story of, uh, of the, the G200, the G202, the Turbo Raven. We also built the G300, which was a single place, uh, 300 horsepower airplane. And unfortunately, uh, Marta Meyer lost her life in that airplane due to a canopy failure um, several years ago. Um, real tragedy. She was on the World Aeronautic Team in Oklahoma practicing for the Nationals. But uh, those are the airplanes that uh, I've been responsible for. Uh, we, uh, I guess the only other piece of the story that you might be interested in is that uh, uh, Dominique Roland, from, uh, from France, from CAP Aviation. Uh, he was the uh, president of CAP at the time. Uh, approached me here at Oshkosh in about 90, 95, 96, could have been 95, or 96. He came out to Scapoose 
presentation was almost complete. Uh, we were literally down to only two items to be left on the uh, DGAC's checklist. One was uh, a, a canopy clearance issue for the front occupant. They wanted uh, a little bit more room in the front in the front canopy when they when we did the crash test. When we took the fuselage and slammed it into a brick wall. Uh, it's painful to watch that. Uh, the the dummy's uh, helmeted head got too close to the front canopy. In fact, it broke the front canopy. So they said, "Yeah, you're going to have to redesign the canopy." The other was the 15G seat. Excuse me, this 15G seat requirement. We've gone back and forth with DGAC as to whether that uh, requirement was really applicable to our airplane. Originally, they gave us a letter saying no, it was not. Later, they came back and said yes, that they were going to insist that the airplane have a 15G seat. Air Oregon Arrow uh, was working on that particular item uh, at the time that uh, uh, the certification seats due to, to the, the bankruptcy and cap aviation. So, uh, unfortunately, the airplane never did finalize its, its certification, but it was comforting to know that it got really, really close. So. Uh, that's kind of the story of the G200, G202, G300, Turbo Raven. Uh, when when I shut down Acrotech in the late 90s, it was my desire to see um, support for owners and builders continue. And one of our uh, one of our owners, a guy named Chris Myers, both of you know him. Chris uh, owned the airplane that is uh, it's the, the green one that's out there right now, uh, the G202, and he had, uh, he had some really cool ideas about what he wanted to do to it, and uh, so um, uh, we came to an agreement ultimately for Chris to purchase all the molds and the remaining inventory of parts that we had there and with the idea that he would supply uh, parts out of the molds uh, 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 fittings and hardware to the builders uh, and, uh, and continue on support. And also, uh, he said, made it very clear that he wanted to make some modifications and he wanted a six-cylinder engine. He wanted a 300-horsepower engine. And so he did. And he put the engine on it and put a straight wing on it and ultimately moved the tail back seven inches, which was the same as what we've done in the, the G300. And we made another uh, bunch of other additional modifications to the airplane. Uh, structurally, it's significantly different. Uh, Longerons go much further back in the airplane. Uh, and I think this afternoon, at one, the MX folks are going to be here to tell you a lot more about that process, because they are very, very different airplanes now. Uh, with uh, with the changes that they did, and uh, ultimately it became the, the MX2, and the the latest version of it is out here, the black airplane in front. So uh, that's kind of the history and kind of where the, the airplane started out and where they've come. Um, that's about all I've got to say this morning. Been more than happy to entertain questions uh, from from anybody. Yes. What kind of education and training did you have to let you design airplanes? Well, uh, 
roll that, uh, that, that fuselage down to uh, across the line down into Georgia. And I don't know whether that airplane was ever completed or not. I kind of lost track of that, of that jet. Uh, also had a Pitts S2A that I sold about that same time as well. Yes? Would you just comment on the tail modification that everybody talks about? Sure. Flying magazine article, etc. Sure. And uh, there was a uh, there's a letter that what's that? He's asking me if I can comment about the various tail modifications uh, that are available on the 202. Um, let me give you just a little bit of history. Uh, there's no so surprise, no secret to anybody here that there have been two uh, uh, fatal structural failures in the 202 in the tail. The uh, NTSB asked me to get involved about three years ago, and it involved several trips back to uh, back to Washington D.C. and to look at and try to understand exactly what happened. Uh, the NTSB re uh, research was extremely thorough. It even included the building of a new finite model, uh, finite element model uh, of the tail. And their ultimate conclusion was that there was nothing wrong with the structure of the 202, the 202's tail. Uh, one of the things that we found in examining a lot of the airplanes, Eric Venice in uh, North Carolina was very much involved in this. He, uh, he was looking at a number of airplanes. And we found a wide variance in builders' techniques and also substitution of unauthorized materials. Eric found one airplane that had the horizontal stab attached with just plain old boat cloth and, uh, and polyester resin. Uh, unfortunately, that airplane had held together, but uh, we found things like that. We found voids uh, in the seam between the top and the bottom of the fuselage. So there were enough things that, that Eric found. Uh, I was, was sent a number of pictures. I looked at a number of airplanes myself. There were enough variations in builder technique that we decided that, uh, that there's something that, that should be addressed. And Eric uh, designed a what he calls a uh, shallow bulkhead modification. It's been done to a lot of 202s. Uh, it fits in the tail at, a, at an angle, uh, and it's much larger than the banjo bulkhead that's there now. Um, and that, uh, that's a very good mod. He also changes the, uh, the vertical uh, fin skins back to carbon fiber. Uh, originally, they were, uh, they were glass, so they were transparent to, to radio signals. Uh, so that's Eric's mod. Uh, I fully endorse it. I don't see any issues with it. Uh, I, I encourage people to consider it. Uh, there's a, another mod. Some of the folks decided that they wanted the extended tail that MX had done to, to the MX2 series of airplanes. And there are at least three 202s that I'm aware of that are currently flying with the MX tail. The MX tail, uh, the fact that it extends seven inches further aft than the 202 has a different structure. It has a different uh, bulkhead structure in the back, and uh, I don't see any issues or any problems with that with that mod. 
the way most of us historically have built airplanes. And so, uh, and I think that's the reason that people didn't understand that they had to provide sufficient load pass into and out of those skins. And that's the reason people would think, oh, that's, that's just filler, and so I can use boat cloth in that area. And when the NTSB did their study, they shook their heads and said, you know, this, this is exactly what we're finding and what our model is telling us is that the, the skins carry the loads and they carry them appropriately, but the banjo bulkhead, which is, I think a lot of people were assuming were carrying those loads and said, well, the banjo bulkhead looks fine, so I, you know, I don't need to worry about anything else. The banjo bulkhead really doesn't do very much at all. It is a structural stiffener for the fuselage, which it does very well, but it does not transmit the loads from the horizontal stab into the fuselage. But they were designed to do that. So the load path is from the horizontal stab into the vertical fins, which is then into the fuselage. And if that load path is provided correctly, um, then there, there are no issues at, at all. Um, so some people are, are pulling their, their fin skins off. Um, we did this, I uh, believe it was just recently done for Bob Stark's airplane. And uh, Bob's airplane was built very well to begin with. It had several hundred hours, hundreds of hours of hard aerobatics. And when they took it apart, they found absolutely no problem whatsoever. And it uh, uh, was put back together uh, earlier this year with, uh, with the, 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 the supply of carbon fiber fence skins. And those are available. Uh, somebody can send me an email if you like. We can, we can provide those to you. Necessary. So those are the those are the three modifications. There's uh, quite a few two and twos that are still flying. People have just uh, inspected them real carefully, make sure that that they're 
ear lobes in one skin are transmitted through the honeycomb to the other side. If you interrupt that load path, then you have to make sure that you heal that up. And I'm trying to put this in more layman's terms, but that's, that's the best way to understand it. And I would say that if if you're working on a 202 or any of any of the, the airplanes now, carbon fiber airplanes, um, if you're working on them or if you're having a shop work on them, be sure that they thoroughly understand uh, the modern advanced composite construction. Um, part of the problem that we found was that uh, historically fiberglass composite parts on airplanes were wheel pads and cowlings, and it really didn't matter. Um, they were not structural, uh, and these are. So anytime that you penetrate the skins and expose core, and in the builder's manual, there's a whole section on that that explains you know, what, what to do. I would, I would say, you know, I, I guess to answer your question, DJ, if you, if you had a, uh, a needle that went through, might not worry, worry about it too much. Um, you know, I, I just fill it with some epoxy on each side or whatever. But um, as far as I'm concerned, no, there's not a minimum size uh, opening that you can ignore. Besides, it worries me just a little bit that you're putting a screw through. Because if, you, if you then torque that screw at all, you're going to crush the, uh, the, the top of material. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I fixed that. And see, that's the, exactly the kind of things that we found. Um, and I think now, now there are a lot more people that understand composite construction. Um, and, and, you know, 25 years ago, uh, we ran into things like that. Yes. So I'm sorry, just a little basic uh, question related to that. How far do you get rid of the honeycomb?
everybody we are back so everybody um folks thank you guys for listening to that little message richard giles thank you for joining us on this podcast where it has evolved since it was published on july 24th 2019 at iac's airspace media is a shout out to him so that was really fun and also we have a lot of good stuff on the mind today for the podcast, and uh, it was really fun. So, everybody, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode, and we're going to take, um, well, before we wrap up, I have a picture of a Giles G200 that I'm looking at right now. It has all blue fuselage. It has a ye- two yellow lines, uh, two yellow lines on the wing, and then the other wing has a blue... A blue uh, wing, back wing, a blue back wing with uh, the yellow strings, a two landing gear shells that are blue and yellow, and all this aircraft is just mostly blue and yellow. So that's really fun and uh, cool. Also, folks, um, this is our second to last episode of season two. So um, the font, the fo- this today is February. 22nd, so, 2nd, so on Monday, March 1st, everybody, we are gonna, on Monday starts Bomber of Jet Teams Month here on this podcast, is gonna be starting on next week, we are gonna start Jet Teams Month, everybody, now I'm gonna reveal the Jet Teams that are gonna be on here. So, everybody, the first jet team is going to be the United States Navy's Flight Demonstration Squadron, the Blue Angels, everybody. This is going to be really, really fun. And also, the other jet team is March 8th, is going to be called the, um, is going to be the U.S. Air Force's Thunderbirds. And then on March 15th is the Patriots' jet team. So those are the um, jet teams for uh, Jet Teams Month 2021. Also, Season 3 should come out a long time there, so we are going to take a little break in the action, so that's our Season 2 finale is going to be there as well. So, everybody, I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode of the Stunt Plane Podcast, and folks... Next week is on the United States Navy's Flight Demonstration Squadron, everybody's favorite, the Blue Blue Angels. Okay, we will see you all then. Bye-bye.